sometimes it's about getting through a very difficult day when in the morning I think I'll never make it. Mm -hmm. And it's also about, I think, having a day that has some of those moments in it, those quieter moments. It's very rarely about I just bagged a great investment or did a great deal. It's never about that. (laughs) I'm Dr. Mark Rowe and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits and leadership practices, focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Nora Casey. Nora is an inspiring leader, entrepreneur and human rights campaigner, formerly a dragon in the popular TV series Dragon's Den. Nora is also a well-known Irish publisher, radio and TV personality. In the podcast, Nora talks with me about courage and the willingness to face your fears. We talk about how adversity can deliver post-traumatic growth with new perspectives and how resilience can come from taking risks once you're less afraid of failing than you are of succeeding. We also explore the positive contagion impact and how giving time and energy to yourself and others is so powerful. If you're a leader who recognizes, particularly since COVID-19, that living with vitality and building a more resilient mind matter now more than ever for you and your team, then this podcast is for you. For further details, visit drmarkrow.com. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Nora Casey. What's really interesting, I think anybody that knows of Nora Casey will think of an extraordinary businesswoman, an entrepreneur, somebody who projects a really confident face to the external world. But it's really interesting to learn that Nora started off her career as a nurse. So there must be a really deep, meaningful, caring side to Nora as well, which I'd like to learn a little bit more about. Um, thank you so much. And thanks for having me, Mark. I, I always say to people, the first thing you need to know about me is I started off life as a nurse. Um, mm. and, and I always say that for two reasons. One, because I'm a bit of a blended human myself. It's very important to me that the nursing part of me is very strong all the way through my life, the need to want to do good and to volunteer and to give back. Um, But also people imagine that I was just beamed down confident. (laughs) And in fact, I was not a confident, you know, young girl. I wasn't the one to put my hand up in class. And nursing doesn't, in those days, you know, I stay very close to nurses. I always feel at home when I'm among them. I'm doing a podcast series with nurses at the moment about the pandemic. But it didn't actually attract confident people. Nursing in those days wanted people who would obey Mm -hmm. the rules. Um, There was a lot of hierarchy. They didn't really want questioning minds. And so I think that sometimes says more about me that I was comfortable going into a profession that was about caring, that wasn't necessarily about the one who was speaking out or being a leader. Um, And I still, those five years were still the most important five years in my in my early life, the, the biggest foundation blocks for the rest of my life. And do you think it's influenced how you see the world now? Always. It's always influenced everything because even in the toughest of business situations, when I was running multiple companies and 
tough times and tough decisions would be required. I always said to myself, there's nothing tougher than when you're a nurse. You know, I had a particular incident when I was on night duty as a student nurse in those days. I was part of the establishment and there was just me between life and death uh, in a patient in a coronary care unit. Um, and, and when I think about tough situations, I think actually that's tough making a decision as to what you're going to do and taking a risk in business is not tough at all. And I'm wondering, you know, one of the things I think about is, you know, how doctors and and nurses, you know, health professionals can sometimes have a particular view of their own health in terms of, you know, being slow to seek help, uh, tending to ignore symptoms and not really practice what they preach. I mean, do, do you think that could apply to you in terms of your own health, Nora? Not now, uh, 100% not now, because yes. I've been reminded so many times about my own mortality through difficult times in my life that I mm. really do want to be around, especially as I'm the only parent for my son. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really mind my health now. Now, don't even ask me about what I got up to when I started nursing at 17 and uh, <laughs> those years, because definitely there was no element of, you know, good health about, you know, the off duty time, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I think we all become wiser from our experiences. There's no doubt about that. Uh, you know, I know that um, you have, you said there you're a lone parent and, and obviously you have experienced a lot of adversity in your life personally. Yeah, I think um, somebody asked me recently to do a chapter for a book on the day that changed your life. And I, before I thought about it, I always thought it was the day that Richard died, who was my late husband, um, because it was such a cataclysmic event for myself and Dara and it really changed the trajectory of the rest of my life but actually the day that changed my life was the day I left my first husband that's the Mm. truth Um, I think that's a really hard message to give to people I I got married in London when I was quite far away from family and friends you know I used to think I was not a typical domestic abuse survivor, but I was totally typical. Like when I went back and met with so many other people who survived domestic violence, I realized they were just like me. I was away from home. There is a particular issue about the caring professions, particularly nursing in terms of domestic violence. I think that sometimes you're targeted because you're empathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like to think of myself as a strong person and all the way through my life, I'd be sitting on panels and people would be asked, what would you do if, you know, your boyfriend or husband hit you or had an affair? And these strong women would say the most extraordinary things, you know, to be out of that relationship pretty Mm. quickly. I found it very hard in my life to forgive myself for staying nine years in a relationship that was very violent. And I, I won't go into it because if I asked you to recount the worst days of your life, like I had repeated it on the Late Late Show and mm. obviously I've talked about it on radio and I did a TED talk. But suffice to say that in that relationship, um, there was quite a bit of violence. I still have a lot of the physical scars. My I broke a bone on my face here oh, during dear. a particularly violent episode. So mm. when people photographers say smile, my lip goes down instead of up. So it was a, a constant reminder at, at mm. my happy times of those days. I had broken ribs and all kinds mm. of different um, physical um, scars, but I also had bad psychological ones. And mm-hmm. I tried many, many times to leave him. I used to, I lived in South London and I drove to uh, Harrow where my offices were. And every Monday I promised myself I would leave him, um, you know, and then the weekend would pass and I'd never leave him. And, you know, it was one of those very difficult, I think it was one of the most difficult decisions I ever made. And I, 
I think the key thing that changed was I told my mom. I'd never told anybody during all mm. those years. I was, I was, in fact, my father thought he was the most wonderful man on the planet because he would mm. drown me in flowers and gifts, and he thought he was an incredibly wonderful, caring husband. And um, and this one weekend, my mom had seen something happen during a previous visit, and uh, she didn't see him slapping me, but she saw the aftermath, and mm-hmm. uh, I knew she suspected that something was going on there. And I'd missed some time at work through black eyes and other things, so um, I told her, and I knew, <laughs> partly because I thought my two brothers will go over there and they'll end up spending a lifetime in prison if they find out, so mm-hmm. I knew I had to leave him. And I packed a very small bag. I'd, I'd rehearsed a speech a million times to to tell him why I was leaving. And uh, I got up at five o'clock, showered, packed this tiny bag, and I woke him up and said, I'm leaving you. And he kind of said, you know, go back to bed. What are you talking about? And I started into this lovely prepared speech. And I think I only got a couple of sentences in and I could hear him snoring, you know, in the background. So I just went down the stairs. I had this tiny red car. I I remember this so strongly mm-hmm. and I drove away and I felt like I was driving off a cliff. You know, I had nowhere to go. I had no home. I think most domestic abuse survivors will say that as much as the violence is bad and it's very paradoxical because how can you love somebody and stay with somebody who does those things mm-hmm. to you? But there's practical issues like, uh, you know, not having any financial stability, not having mm-hmm. anywhere to live. Of course. Uh, there's lots of issues around mm-hmm. that. And I, I drove like, I felt like I was driving off a cliff. I booked into mm-hmm. the Ibis Hotel in Heathrow, which is the cheapest on the planet. Mm-hmm. And I also had this small, I remember talking to my sister And I kept saying over and over, this will never happen to me again. I will never let anybody do this to me again, to own me financially or otherwise. I'm going to be standing on my own two feet for the rest of my life, whatever happens. Mm. And, you know, the most important thing about that day and the aftermath is complicated is that I would never then have met Richard. Who was, you know, I always say if God gives you a bad one, he then gives you a, an amazing one. So mm. he's by far the love of my life. Richard worked with the BBC at the time I was doing some work with the Beeb and uh, we met, fell in love, um, mm. married within the three years. And I would never have had Dara and I would never be who I am. I mean, there's no way that Nora, who I was in my late thir- in my late 20s, would be a dragon and dragon's den. Like mm-hmm. out of that very dark period of time, it transformed me into somebody who was resilient and more confident. It took a little while longer maybe to be more confident, but I definitely had a kernel inside me um, that changed everything about me, um, what my life was going to be like and what I was going to achieve. Very long answer, sorry. No, I mean, I, I, I think... You know, one of the things I've seen so many people in my life who have overcome tremendous adversity and this idea of post-traumatic growth is something I'm big into that we can grow from really tough times and 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 emotionally draining experiences uh, and we can gain a new sense of perspective and, and a new outlook and and real resilience. Did you get any help at any stage, Nora? I mean, obviously, firstly, it took tremendous courage to walk away um, for all sorts of reasons. And many people, I think, probably do feel trapped in dysfunctional relationships and maybe for financial reasons or lack of confidence or practically having nowhere maybe to go. People can sometimes feel stuck. Yeah, and I, I, I have a small group 
group of women going through very complicated domestic violence that I mentor mm. and support. Now, obviously, mm. I started working with Women's Aid and all kinds of other domestic violence charities sure. to educate myself. Like when I started talking about it first, I was just somebody that it had happened to. And mm. yet I was at the receiving end of thousands of emails and messages from people saying, oh, that happened to me. And can I talk to you? And I was so ill-equipped in that area. I I didn't take professional counseling um, mm. or psych psychotherapy. Um, at the time, my immediate few months, six months was sofa surfing with um, with friends. And, you know, it's funny, having told nobody for so long, I then was in the very difficult position of having to tell people, you know, mm. that I had left him and uh, the reason I'd left him. And um, but I did have to have somewhere to live. That was the most important thing. I think my family, I was quite estranged from my family, not in a not in a negative way. It's just that I'd left at 17 mm -hmm. and I'd always been away from home. And I was the one who'd gone first and stayed away longest. And, you know, you end up over time having conversations with your father and mother. How are you? I'm grand. <laughs> when are you I going know. back? I'm going back on Friday. <laughs> you know, you it, it would take too long to kind of tell it. But then yes. suddenly I was in a position of actually sitting in amongst them all. And um, not all of them, but my mom certainly my sister, um, you know, and my friends were just my my support, I think, during that time. I I do agree, though, that there's certainly been times when I felt that I could have done with that professional support, mm -hmm. um, somebody who was independent of me that I could talk to. It just so happened that my life was in this kind of crazy spiral of work and, mm -hmm. you know, issues around finances. And I'm, I'm always, you know, so sympathetic and empathetic to young people out there trying to find their first home and trying to find a way in life. I mean, I didn't buy my first home till well into my 30s because of what happened to me, you know. And that was like that sense of stability was really important to me and it helped. And I think, you know, you've you've become a real leader in that area now. And I mean, I think one of the best ways we can perhaps help ourselves is to reach out and support others. And um, I think that can be that can be cathartic and that can provide healing. I know for me in my own work as a doctor, the most fulfillment I get each day is is helping others. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, you know, whatever little problems you have yourself, they dissolve away when yeah, you're giving to someone else. I agree. I work the the other part of my life, you know, obviously I have my business and I've got investments mm. and but I virtually work full time, I always say, <laughs> for vital voices. And Vital Voices was set up by Hillary Clinton and Madeleine Albright. And yes. um, it's a fantastic organization. They they actually go into uh, countries around the world and they support women, not organizations. They find that one woman who can change society. It might be in politics, it might be in public life. Mm -hmm. um, my own area, the economic empowerment. So I'm on the European board and I've been a global ambassador for them in this area for quite some time. But it means that I mentor women who are female founders right across the world. Now, I know the pandemic's been really tough here and I'm the first mm. one out, uh, you know, talking on television and radio about it. But when I'm talking to my, you know, I mentor a woman in Delhi in India. She's a fantastic Brilliant. business. And um, she lost her business. It's called On Hotel. It's it's a kind of a very cool Airbnb in, in India that if you don't want to go to hotel, you can go to a beautiful homestead in the lakes or the mountains and... Um, and of course, the pandemic hit and she suddenly had no business and herself and her husband um, and myself talked through it. And uh, largely through their efforts, they swiveled into a digital uh, studio. But she's one of many women across the world that I that I mentor. And uh, for one thing, um, it's a real eye opener in terms of how 
almost platinum standard supports we have here in Ireland. Mm -hmm. Uh, But secondly, at the end of a very, very long day, my brother, who, you know, is always nagging me about how much work I do, you know, voluntarily. And he's, why, what do you get out of it? Why do you spend all day, every day doing it? I said, because there's nothing, I can't describe it, but, Mm. you know, there's nothing more fulfilling than there's there's a wonderful woman from Ethiopia that is in Brussels and she got a new contract there a few weeks ago and we'd been talking about it and she struggles with confidence and when Mm. I met her first you know we were doing videos over and over again so she could be more confident about speaking and everything and Mm -hmm. she got the contract and I finished that call and it was like look a million dollars wouldn't have replaced the feeling you know um so i think that's really important to all of us that we understand that giving back is better than taking i think oh absolutely i mean you know we, we make a living with uh, what we get but we make a life by what we give to others and i really i really believe strongly that giving yeah. whether you're giving simply giving your time or your energy to somebody else it doesn't have to be financial giving yeah. Um, at times, of course, that can help too, but it's a giving of yourself. Uh, I think Ra- Ralph Waldo Emerson said that, you know, uh, you know, silver and jewellery are only apologies for gifts that really the the um, the farmer brings his lamb and the, the poet brings his poem that you have to give a bit of yourself, yeah, giving of exactly. yourself. I think it's really so, so, so powerful. Yeah, really. So, and, and you're doing that in spades. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about kindness, Nora, um, is even learning about other people being kind and, and volunteering. It, it inspires other people to, to do the same, paying it forward. So it really does have a, a positive contagion impact. Um, good people doing good in the world never happens in isolation. It creates a ripple effect of positivity. Yeah, and uh, I think that's really, really, really important. How would you define success, Nora? <laughs> it's not I always say to people it's not really what I've done in life it's what life has done to me that has defined me you know mm, um, some of the events devastated me um, mm-hmm. but you know it didn't destroy me I think mm. I I do agree that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger so long as there's it's tempered you know mm. there are certain situations where people go through some very difficult times I I may have made millions but that definitely isn't what defines me. Mm-hmm. And that's not something I ever set out to do. You don't go into nursing if you want to make millions. You go into nursing because you want to change the world, you know. And yes. I wouldn't like to imagine myself on my deathbed with my grandchildren saying, what did you do in your life? And I'm telling them about you know, the businesses I turned around. I'd like I to imagine I could do something else. But sometimes the day itself is just a success. I think over the course of my life, I've realized that um, there's certainly days that I didn't feel like I could get up off the couch, you know, especially after Richard died. And, you know, mm. if anyone suggested going for a walk, they would have had the the uh, the head bitten off them because I just couldn't feel. I've never struggled with depression in my life. Um, I I do have some very cl- people very close to me who do. Mm. And I always talk honestly to them and say, I, I don't understand that idea that you can't get out of bed and that, um, you know, everything is dark and black. But during that period of grief, because my sister died a few months before Richard got sick, so it was our okay. Annas Horribilis. And, you know, when I said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, sometimes when hard things happen one after the other, it's quite difficult, I think, to mm-hmm. cope. And for me, of course, it was the first time in my life I completely struggled with actually getting through my day-to-day activities. The only thing I could do, if it wasn't for Dara, to be honest, my son, I wouldn't have got out of bed at all. Um, we just got up and I took him to school. And even on really difficult days, I said, we're going to try and stick to that discipline. 
There were days he cried all the way through the car journey and I'd get, he had a brilliant form teacher who would come out and sit in the back of the car with him and persuade him to come in and have a cup of tea. Um, and I'd get on with my day and we just endured. It's a terribly harsh word, but it's the only one that springs to mind. We endured all of those days and weeks and months. So for me, success on those days was mm. getting to seven o'clock. I had a great belief with Dara that we would watch a funny movie every night. So for one hour of the day, we would laugh. Uh, it involved a lot of John Candy and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and all the airplane movies. And yes. At that time, you had to order them from Amazon. So I ordered like 50 of them, you know, uh, the Blues Brothers. And every night at seven o'clock, we sat down together and we would okay. laugh for an hour and a half. And that was success for me. You know, on days during the pandemic, I was always the kind of person, you know, I kind of believe in my life that I should always be uncomfortable. And, you know, if I feel I'm achieving things too easily mm. I have to make it more difficult for myself it's a it's a strange thing in my head but but it's particularly prevalent around the idea of being afraid you know I mm. often write about the joy of abject fear and mm. I embrace it to the point where I almost um, overdo it so because I'm terrified of flying yeah, I learned how to fly a plane you know wow. uh, white, white water rafting yes I'll do that I thought I would never zip line, and then I did the longest zip line in the world. So I, I climbed Karen Till before I'd even climbed a hill. Like I, I have this need, uh, insatiable need, that life should be full of big, huge things. And then the pandemic hit, and I became obsessed with not the big, huge things, but how could you make the day wider? Mm. You know, I can't, I can't make my life longer. Mm. I, it will be as long as it is, but I can ensure that each day has things in it that make it wider. And, what do you mean uh, by wider, Nora? I think probably um, the simple pleasure of a walk in the park. Mm. You know, I grew up in the Phoenix Park, it's very important to me. I guess not necessarily great adventures or far-flung places, but instead of picking up the book 10 times and dipping into it, reading it properly. Mm. Um, deciding that I'd always wanted to learn about behavioral science, and that was very important at the start of the pandemic. So I took myself off to do short courses at Harvard and all kinds of other places to learn more about it. Um, Maybe having a proper conversation, you know, especially with family and friends where over your life you get used to, hi, how are you? Did you buy anything in Brown Thomas? <laughs> what was the weather like? Did you do a bit of gardening? Um, whereas I found myself in the pandemic saying, if I do nothing else today, I'm going to have a proper conversation with that person that every year I say I'm going to have a proper conversation with. <laughs> That's so interesting because I had, a, I had a conversation with a friend of mine recently and he was saying, you know, he was tired of so many superficial conversations in his life that it was so hard to have a real conversation. Yeah, exactly. And it's great for your brain. Like, I mean, yes. I'm always obsessed with what can you what can you do about smart aging and how can you mm. keep your brain active? Um, I do think that, you know, sometimes at the end of days in the pandemic, it wasn't about me climbing mountains. You know, it was about finding the hour to walk along the beach in Sandymount mm. or, you know, having a good chat with my son, Dara, you know, while we were driving somewhere or going up to see my mom for a cup of tea or just sitting quietly reading a book. You know, these were really important things. It was quite a change for me from the big, huge things that I always try and achieve. You know? Well, the Japanese have a term for this and they call it ikigai, which is really you know, finding joy in life's simple pleasures and experiencing more of a flow state by being mindfully present, just What's engaging. What's it called again? It's Say called it again? Ikigai. Ikigai. That's, yeah. I'm going to use that. That's a yeah, great Yeah, Ikigai comes from yeah. Okinawa. And it's all about that sense of inner purpose and connection with the world around you, just by being mindful, savoring 
you know, savoring that lovely cup of coffee, savoring mm. that walk in nature in the Phoenix Park, um, yeah. savoring the joy of the gift of the day we've been given. Yeah, that's exactly it. And mm. that, so, so you start off saying to me, <laughs> what does success mean to me? Sometimes success is about Ada Alexan, who I was just talking about, the Ethiopian woman. Mm. Um, the success is about her success. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's about getting through a very difficult day when in the morning I think I'll never make it. Mm-hmm. And it's also about, I think, having a day that has some of those moments in it, those quieter moments. It's very yes. rarely about I just bagged a great investment or did a great deal. It's never about that. <laughs> I know. And I mean, all the work from positive psychology would say, you know, hedonic adaptation means that you just adapt to that anyway. So, you know, whether you've got 10 investments or 100, I mean, it all just becomes the same in terms of your yeah. brain anyway. You know? And also, I, I, I'm a firm believer in issues around connected capitalism and social yes. entrepreneurship. So mm. even in the early days when the business was booming, everything I had was plowed into other people's businesses now. Yes. I would have had more fun putting my money down the toilet than some of the investments I have in Dragon's Den. (laughs) But I still think I'm not a great consumer of goods. You know, I don't really need to have a lot of trappings in my life. Mm. I'm not, apart from my need to travel a great deal, but I am a travel writer. I have been since my 20s. So I'm lucky that I do get to see the world. Thank God, before the pandemic hit, I saw most of the world, but um, hopefully again soon. But other than that, I don't have a lot of needs, you know? Well, it's really interesting how when you begin to pare back your needs and really simplify and declutter your life, how little we actually do need to feel fulfilled, you know, to be, I think, to be ourselves in the world, to feel listened to, to feel loved, to feel valued. And mm. to feel that we have that sense of purpose in Ikigai. I mean, I think that's that's the the sweet spot of living. Yeah, exactly. I think often I would get a re- real high if I learned something. Now, it could be something quite small. So I've started being very actively involved in editing the magazines again. And we use mm. a particular package from Adobe, which I learned like myself 10, 12 years ago. And I work with a group of designers. And like during the day, I'll struggle with how to do a drop cap. I don't even know if anyone even knows if there's a drop cap in the magazine or a heading or something. And suddenly I figure it out myself. Yes. And I just get a, there's something about learning something new every day that really appeals to me Mm. you know it could be dara's a great consumer of information now he you know it's true what they say about young people dara does not know what a television is like he lives in the world of you know youtube and the web Mm. and he's finished his finals at ucd but he has this he's he's a bit like richard actually (laughs) richard was a BBC correspondent for 20 years and he knew a little about a lot of things. Now, he would say that mm. himself. If you sat next to him, he could talk to you about Sudan, he could talk about electrical engineering, he could talk about anything because at some point in his life, he's interviewed somebody or yes. he's learned a bit. And Dara has this enormous capacity for information that he just gobbles it up all the time. So when he comes in in the evening, like, you know, uh, he'll sit up at the table and start talking about something I know nothing about or a piece Mm. of music. You know, as I go through my life, I was finding myself increasingly listening to music I used to listen to when I was younger. Yeah. And he introduced me to a whole raft of new music, which, you know, really kind of, I suppose, helps your brain, you know, to appreciate Mm. new music rather than always listening to the old music, you know. I can't help but see that beautiful uh, cross that you have there on your neck, just on the on the Zoom camera. Uh, Can can I ask you, are you a spiritual person, Nora? Yes, very spiritual. Mm. I I think um, these are really difficult conversations in Ireland. Um, I'll be honest, I was on the committee that brought the Pope to Ireland Mm -hmm. and I took an awful lot of criticism for that. I was on television, usually 
been beaten up, um, mainly because I think many senior representatives at the Catholic Church that were on those committees with me didn't feel that they could go on television. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And I was often on for other reasons. And suddenly they would say, hey, what are you doing bringing the Pope to Ireland? And do you agree with uh, the Church's teachings on X, Y, and Z? So I, I really struggled to try and explain to people that I wasn't really an institutional Catholic I was born a Catholic. You can't take it out of me and you, no more than mm-hmm. you can take the Irish out of me. Um, but my beliefs are very personal. And, you know, I'm the first person to stand up for, you know, I was an ambassador for marriage equality, for, you know, you name it in Ireland. I've been at the forefront of every campaign that has been liberal. I work with the Magdalene survivors, still am doing yes. a documentary and some new documentaries at the moment. You know, I've given my life to ensuring that people are treated equally and, you know, are not. So I can't condone anything that uh, the Catholic Church does in that regard. And But I do kind of feel at some point, it's not me that should be leaving it. It's all those others that should be leaving it. And mm. I'm very comfortable you know, finding comfort in lighting candles in Clarendon Church, which I do regularly. People then started accusing me of not going to Mass often enough. <laughs> so I said, I, I don't often get a lot out of Mass. You know, if, yes. if I feel I need some meditation or mindfulness, I often will go with my mom and, you know, mm. uh, listen in. I have some great friends who are priests who are very spiritual and mm-hmm. very good and kind and espouse all the virtues you'd want for them to have. So, yeah, I am spiritual, definitely. I wouldn't, I, I really don't like organized religion, you know, just because mm-hmm. of, you know, all of the things we read, all the horrors and dreadful stuff that happened in the name of religion in the past. But it's kind of one of those areas that's quite difficult, I think, to talk about in Ireland now. Mm. I've often said to people when they've accused me, I said, I stood up and defended you. Like I was I was one of those people who got out and canvassed and walked the streets. And and yet it seems very hard for people to accept that you can be open about your spirituality. Well, I do know that it's a very important part of health and well-being. And, you know, people can express their spirituality in so many different ways, whether it's through a specific religion or through, you know, connecting with their higher power, whatever their higher power may be, or just connecting with their life values. Um, But I think everybody's entitled to be the person they choose to be in the world. And, and here's the honest truth. I wouldn't really mind which religion I sit in because mm. I was brought up a Catholic and obviously all my family are. Richard converted to Catholicism in order to marry me. He was he was far more a Catholic than I ever was um, because he kind of, you know, late in life went to St. George's Cathedral in London yes. and, you know, studied it all and then was boring me with all of the stories that I'd completely forgotten about from my catechism. Um, but I, I met the Dalai Lama. And oh, wow. And I have to say that that man probably had a bigger and more profound impact on me than meeting the Pope. I Why don't was want that? that to sound. I don't know, because I was totally unexpected. I, I was invited. He was opening the Peace Garden at the Imperial War Museum in London. We lived right behind it, but I was also invited as a journalist. And of course, I knew the cathedral quite well, and he was wow. um, doing a service there. So I went along and uh, saw him from a distance. Then we went to the Imperial War Museum and... Um, he was up on stage and speaking with uh, Trudy Styler and Sting, who mm-hmm. had fundraised in order for him to be there. And on the right-hand side of the stage, there was a lovely, flowery, beautifully decorated stairs, and there was a mass of journalists and cameras. 
And I stood on the left-hand side on my own because I was trying to nip away afterwards. Sure. He came down the left-hand side of the stairs <laughs> and I was the only one there. All his minders were on the other side and he just approached me and held my hand. And it was, I actually was so grateful that one of Richard's colleagues from the BBC recorded the conversation because I couldn't remember a word of it. Talk about, you know, the biggest scoop. And he just said, hello, how are you? You know, where do you come from? And I started talking about Ireland and he started talking about Northern Ireland, but he held my hand in both his hands. His eyes never moved from my eyes. Not too long after a whole donut of journalists and cameras and everything were all around us. He did not flinch. He just talked to me for the whole time. And when he patted my hand and said, you know, bye and, you know, Mm. blessings and everything else, I was absolutely stunned how overwhelmed I was with that interaction. I mean, I remember going in the car and Richard was stuck in broadcasting house. And I said to you, I was just couldn't stop talking about it. I said, you have no idea. I mean, he has such a presence about him. Mm. Spiritually, I felt I was in the presence of somebody tremendously good and a real connection with him, you know. And, And for the whole of my life, I always imagined that meeting the Pope would be the same thing. And it wasn't. Now, I don't know why it wasn't. And that's not to say the Pope's not a good man, because I actually have great admiration for him. But when I say I'm not really a religious person in that sense, I mean, I could quite easily follow the Dalai Lama because Mm. I thought he was an incredible man, you know. Well, he really espouses compassion and kindness and heartfelt love in the world. I think he's a a beautiful person. Beautiful. And I met one of his, um, I met Matthew Rickard. Who mm. is um, who is also one of his peers, colleagues, part of his circle, and he wrote uh, the book. He's uh, everyone calls him the happiest man in the world. That's what he because he's written all the books on happiness. And I did an early morning meditation session with him in Washington, of all places. Wow! Don't even ask me why, but it was an opportunity through a mutual friend who said, "Do you want to come to my house at five a.m. and meet this man, Matthew Ricard?" I said, "Do I what? I will, of course, be at your house." <laughs> But he he also had that presence. I, mm. I talked to him afterwards and uh, he was signing the book for me. There was only a small group of us in the room. And uh, he had that way of bringing us into a very deep meditative state, you know. Mm. And he, of course, lives in the Himalayas for six months every year, you know. So can I ask you, Nora, you know, for our listeners, three take homes for a resilient mind? If I'm being really honest about this, I think yes. that resilience does come sometimes from taking a risk. Mm-hmm. And there's a lovely thing in our lives called plasticity in our mm-hmm. brains, which means that if we can quieten those inner voices that tell mm-hmm. us not to do something, we can sometimes take that leap. But mm-hmm. but there's something very important you have to do, especially women listening. Don't dwell on things for too long. Mm-hmm. We, we struggle with rumination, I think, a lot, women. I think you have to get yourself into a mindset of wanting to do something at that moment. Mm-hmm. And you have to be less afraid of failing than you are of succeeding. It's a very important balance because I meet women all the time in my professional life who won't go for the job or ask the salary increase or, you know, won't leave the husband or the partner or won't go for the PhD. And it's always because they're still doing lists of pros and cons and Mm -hmm. they're still afraid that people might laugh at them if they don't get the job or somebody will say no. So I think in order to, to get, and of course, Everyone knows once you do it once, it's easier the next time and it's easier the next time and it's easier the next time. But I'm always fascinated about how can you get people to the tipping point of taking that leap of faith, like me leaving my first husband. You know, anytime I talk to, I'm doing a series of webinars uh, on the island of Ireland with businesswomen. 
you know, and I say the most important thing you can do in your life is give testimony. You know, people mm. often said to me, why are you talking about domestic abuse? And uh, why do you talk so openly about grief? Because in my previous, you know, in my my parents, my grandparents' lifetime, they never talked about issues around mm. homosexuality or child sexual abuse or alcoholism or depression or mental health issues. And where did that get us? And then some brave people in my lifetime have come out and talked about those things very mm. openly and honestly. I owe it to, that's my legacy. I owe it to humanity to talk openly about things mm. that happen to all of us in our life and to normalize it and make people feel we're all together and that we all go through these difficult things. And for women in particular, for every one woman like me, there's another 10 that fail. You know, mm. there's quite tiny numbers of women who succeed. And I say, don't don't imply that it was all easy. I want to know all the difficulties because if I ask a young woman, where does she want to be in life? And she says, I want to be CEO of Google or, you know, finance director mm. of CRH. Then the only way she can get there, she can set that satnav in her mind. But the only way she can get there is by asking somebody who's there already. And, and when you're talking to me, I want you to tell her about that journey so she understands that all of us fall down, mm. that all of us fail, and that the most important thing is to learn from that and not to be afraid of it. Well, what I hear you saying to me, Nora, more than anything else, is the word courage, which I think you have in spades. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I think so much of what you've spoken about today really embodies courage and the willingness to face your fears. And finally, Nora, after a wonderful conversation, can I ask you, for you, Nora, what's the meaning of life? Oh, wow. You know, Gay Byrne asked me this <laughs> over the course of an hour's interview on RTE. And I, I do remember, you know, him saying, you know, of course, he asks loads of questions, but the reality mm. is he's trying to figure out what the meaning of life is, which is quite terrifying. Um, you know, the honest answer is the meaning of my life mm. increasingly is to leave behind something which is which makes the world better. I mean, if I'm very lucky, I'll do no harm. And if I'm extremely lucky, mm. I might make other people's lives better. In a very practical sense, I grew up in uh, a three-bed house. There were eight of us um, in an OPW lodge in the Phoenix Park. Um, education was a privilege for us, mm -hmm. a real privilege. And, um, and I've spent the guts of my lifetime today trying to make life better for my son and for a lot of my family, um, so that they can build on that front. I went to a desk school. You know, the mm -hmm. chances of somebody like me ending up where I am, given the sort of things I've told you about my life, <laughs> are pretty remote. Uh, so I, I think that for me, I have to be able to say that future generations that come after me, young women in particular, will find it a lot easier because of some of the work myself and my colleagues have done. Well, Nora, I just want to say to you what a pleasure it's been to have you on the podcast. Keep leading and keep inspiring and keep showing us all courage through your actions each and every day. Nora, Thank thanks a million. So thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkrow.com.